Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Welcome back to Strictly VC Download, a weekly show where each week Alex and I review some of the top stories in tech before jumping over to an interview with a mover and shaker in the world of startups, as well as with guests who may have a unique perspective on the tech world from just outside of it. This week, our guest is Bobby Goodlot, a young venture capitalist who was recruited after graduating from Duke to work in product design at Facebook, where he spent four years before leaving in 2012 as the company was going public. Goodlot is interesting for a wide number of reasons, which we will reveal in just a few minutes. But first, some news. The big news this week was a rumor that the Biden administration plans to increase the capital gains tax from the current 20% to 39.6% for those earning at least $1 million of annual investment income, with some speculating that the effective top rate could be as high as 43.4%. 43.4% capital gains tax might kill the golden goose that is America slash Silicon Valley, longtime VC investor Tim Draper tweeted. People need an incentive to build long-term startups of value. Now comes a report from the New York Times that the carried interest loophole may also be on the chopping block. By way of explanation, private equity investors, including VCs, typically claim a percentage of their investors' profits, which they call carry, and they have long insisted that carry should be taxed as capital gains, which is taxed at 20%, rather than as income, which is taxed at almost double this amount. While these rumored changes may sound dramatic, Axios's Dan Primack points out that Biden's leaked proposal for increasing the capital gains tax is actually a departure from his campaign position, which was to treat capital gains as ordinary income. He also wisely notes that these leaked numbers are most likely just a negotiating tactic and that the administration will probably settle for much less, more in the neighborhood of 30% than 39.6%. Given the fact that the S&P 500 closed today, slightly above its Monday open, it seems that the public markets regard these capital gains rumors as a big nothing burger. As for the private markets, only time will tell. Everything has been in a frenzied state in 2021. The housing market with prices way up virtually everywhere. Trading activity by non-professional investors who've driven share prices up and down despite their fundamentals. Of course, listeners know there's also a serious frenzy afoot in the world of startup investing. How crazy have things gotten? According to new PitchBook data, U.S. startups raised $69 billion from investors in the first quarter of this year. That's 41% more than the previous record set in the fourth quarter of 2018. The average valuation for startups at all stages also reached a new high and more than tripled from last year to $1.6 billion for late-stage companies. Readers have already seen in Strictly VC's daily fundings section what the Wall Street Journal reported this week, which is that investors are offering startups five times or more the amount of money that they're asking, and deals that used to take months now sometimes close in days. 
What's going on? Everett Randall, a principal with venture firm Founders Fund, wrote an interesting essay this week called Playing Different Games that notes the degree to which aggressive investing has been paying off for a very small subset of investors. And backed by that momentum and some jaw-dropping returns, this subset has put the pedal to the metal. Traditional VCs might not like it much when Tiger Global jumps the line and writes a big check, or when Andreessen Horowitz does the same. Apparently, though, that's too bad. Andreessen raised $4 billion last year and seems fairly intent on investing all of it this year. Tiger raised $3.75 billion last year and another $6.7 billion this year. And similarly, rarely a day goes by when the firm isn't in the headlines for plugging a massive check into a company, either in the U.S. or in India. The question is how the industry will react, and you have to assume that they will follow in the firm's footsteps or try to, but it isn't going to be easy to catch up with either outfit given their scale. Both Tiger and Andreessen have a lot of employees, around 100 and 200 respectively, which enables them to do far more research faster than 95% of venture firms. Though it sometimes looks like both firms are writing checks willy-nilly, as a former Tiger investor who I talked with this week explained it, Tiger moves fast, but it also does its homework. Judging by the success of Coinbase and many other companies like Filecoin, a kind of cryptocurrency that Andreessen Horowitz backed early on and whose market cap has quietly ballooned to $13.4 billion, it's become exceedingly clear that Andreessen Horowitz is also going to be very hard to beat at this point. Up next, our interview with investor Bobby Goodlot, a longtime angel investor who co-founded the venture firm Form Capital last year with Josh Williams, the co-founder and CEO of Gowalla. But first, a word from our sponsor. Raise more capital faster with Anduin's end-to-end paperless fund subscription platform. Anduin digitizes subscription documents and tax forms for funds and SPVs, so you no longer have to subject your LPs to the same painful and costly fund subscription experience. Track investor engagement and reimagine the LP experience with Anduin. Visit fundsub.io to learn how you can streamline your subscription process and arrange a demo today. And now our interview with Bobby Goodlot, who spent his first four years out of college as a product designer at Facebook, then left when the company went public to try his hand at investing. He seems to be pretty good at it, having backed Blue Bottle Coffee, Envoy, and very notably Coinbase, among roughly 40 other companies. We talked with Goodlot about his move to Miami in recent months, and investing a fund so small and that is backed with so much of his own capital that he argues it gives him far more flexibility than managers who may have more institutional assets under management, but also more competition. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you here. As listeners may or may not know, Bobby had joined Facebook in 2008 right out of Duke University, where he nabbed a computer science degree and then began investing as soon as he left the company four years later in 2012. Bobby, can you walk us through a little bit of what you did at Facebook, just so people understand your background a little better? 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I was an early designer at the company. We called the role product design. And uh, the first team that I was on there was the user growth team. So I was the first designer on Facebook's user growth team. And uh, I designed a lot of the onboarding and registration systems for Facebook. So if you sign up for Facebook anytime from 2008, for many years afterwards, you probably use my interfaces. So very metrics-oriented design. That team has become somewhat legendary. The VP we were working under was Chamath, and some of the team members like Alex Schultz have really grown in prominence over the years. But yeah, we were really the team responsible for designing the systems that amplified Facebook's growth. Later at the company, I was the lead designer on Facebook Photos, so I designed a lot of the web-based interface for photos, like the photo light box, some of the photo upload flows, profile views. A lot of that stuff has been updated and replaced. One thing I like to say about digital product design in general is that we're building sandcastles on the beach and you can build a wonderful thing, but then the next tide comes in and washes away the work. And that's something that really excites me about digital product design in general, which is you, you always need to stay current on it. Something you built a few years ago quickly gets washed away. And it's always changing. So it's interesting to me that you stayed for four years. You left the year that it went public. Did you give any thought to staying longer? What made you decide that it was a good time to get out and start writing checks? I had given some thought to staying longer. And obviously, many of my friends are still there and have risen the ranks and have done extremely well. I I don't know if I'm the best suited in that type of environment. And I, I was just very eager to get started as an investor back then in 2012, to get started as a seed stage investor, there just weren't the same sort of on-ramps that exist today. Today, we have rolling funds and crowdfunding platforms, syndicates. Those didn't exist back then. And so the way to get started was really to be 100% skin of the game angel. And at the time, Facebook was saying, well, you can't stay here and do angel investing. Little did I know that actually some people skirted the rules a bit and it stayed and did the angel investing. But I was very excited to dig in and quite glad that I got started when I did. My second ever angel investment was in Coinbase. And so the timing on that was quite fortunate. Had I stayed longer, maybe I would have slept on that one. But yeah, at the time, that was kind of the way you got started as a seed stage investor. That's really interesting. I didn't know that Facebook had that role in place. Congratulations on Coinbase. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came upon that deal? I I heard another podcast that you'd done last summer, and you mentioned that you'd been a Bitcoin nerd. And so we're following some of the discussion threads that other people might have missed. What sparked that early interest in Bitcoin? This kind of mode of finding startups has informed how I think as an investor. There's a famous quote, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. William Gibson. And I think about that in actually quite literal terms in the sense that there are pockets of the future, these bubbles of the future are hiding all around. And in 2012, at the time, I think the Bitcoin subreddit, r slash Bitcoin, was this bubble of the future where people within it were talking very excitedly about Bitcoin. If you kind of weren't in it, you would kind of scratch your head about it. And then when Coinbase in particular came around, we were used to using some pretty lousy exchange software. The the biggest exchange back then was called Mt. Gox, which later was infamously hacked and a lot of folks lost a lot of money. But back then in 2012, Coinbase came around and it was quite obvious to anyone who was in that bubble of the future that at least within the Bitcoin world, this thing is much superior to Mt. Gox. 
And then the bet was basically that that bubble, the future that was the Bitcoin community then was going to expand and grow to encompass many more people. I felt a similar feeling about Facebook back in the day. I was a college student when Facebook launched. And so everyone who was in college at the time was privy to this future that was quite obvious amongst college students. But if you weren't in college, people would scratch their heads and say, I don't, I don't really understand what's going on. And so when they recruited me, it was kind of an obvious choice for me to go work there because I would go to the library and everyone would have their laptops open browsing Facebook. And so finding where those hidden bubbles of the future are before it distributes out to everybody, that's really my mental model for how I approach seed stage investing. Just drilling down on that a little bit, was it Coinbase's product design that really stood out for you, the fact that it made investing in alternative currencies much more accessible to a broader audience? Absolutely. I think the two core differentiators from day one for me was product design, ease of use, and then branding. And so I think when folks ask, how does design make a difference in fintech, for example, I say trust. Coinbase from day one really communicated trust, and it communicated trust through the design and branding. And that is one of the essential elements that great design can bring in that space, which is thoughtful branding, well-executed flows. It establishes a level of trust with the user that, again, was completely absent in the space. It felt incredibly scary and scammy to be working within Mt. Gox. And even many, many years after Coinbase got its start, I think so many of the other services and products within the crypto space just had this veneer of mistrust. And design is such a key element to how you overcome that. Just curious if you can comment on your return from your investment in Coinbase. I know you were an investor in the A, C, and E rounds. Is there anything you can say about the cash on cash return from your investment? Well, I think a lot of this is fairly public knowledge at this point. The Series A cost basis was 20 cents. So folks can do math based on that. I think so much of startup investing is you can kind of have a prepared mind about things, but there's also an element of luck about it. And I don't think I had complete foresight when I made the investment that Coinbase was going to be an 80 plus billion dollar company. I thought it was going to be successful, but it's clearly eclipsed even my greatest expectations. So I feel very lucky and fortunate to realize that. You mentioned rolling funds, syndicates. So when you started off, you were just writing checks from your own pocket. And then I guess over time, did that change? Did you start forming syndicates? The funny thing is, and I don't know if I should be embarrassed to say this or not, but when I first got my start as an angel, I got advice from financial advisors who said, when it comes to angel investing, only invest a tiny percentage of your overall net worth into this. And to be honest, I maybe foolishly ignored that advice. Obviously, it's netted out in the long term to have paid off. And it was a large risk I took. But I did 40 deals out of my own pocket. I was getting closer to the end of running out of tape here. I wound up investing through a small scout-like fund for a few deals and hit some incredible deals through that, which also Sequoias? allowed me to increase. No, it wasn't Sequoia. It was a different fund, but was able to kind of play around investing at a larger check size, did some great deals through that. And then thankfully it all worked out. Otherwise I could have been in trouble. And I think I had a little bit higher risk tolerance than most folks. You were also briefly an EIR with Greylock. Were you helping scout deals for Greylock? 
That's right. Yeah, I was a designer in residence there. And so I was helping look at deals on the investing team and also supporting some of the portfolio companies with design help. I left that to start my own startup and also to get back into angel investing because while I was there, I was not allowed to do my own deals. And I wanted to not have too big of a gap in that investing track record and continue to deploy my own capital as I could. So Bobby, just wondering what you make of these tools that are available to people. It's brought so many more people into the industry. Just wondering if you were to advise somebody in your position right now, somebody who just came out of Coinbase, has the resources to invest on their own, would you recommend that over using one of these other products for any reason? Or it just depends on their risk profile? I think it depends on their risk profile and their own appetite. If, if you truly enjoy this type of work, because it can become a lot of work if you want to develop a, a real portfolio, you have to take a lot of meetings. You have to make yourself available and put yourself out there in a way that I think a lot of folks who wind up getting a very meaningful personal exit may not want to. But I think for those folks, and then I think especially for the folks who are trying to break into venture who haven't had this sort of exit, I say go for it. And I say welcome. When I first got started as an angel investor, there was a minor blip of new people becoming angels, minor compared to the new entrants we see today. And I remember a very prominent investor saying at the time, all these new angel investors, they're all going to lose all their money and they're fools for doing this. And I was a little bit annoyed at that at the time. And I'm glad that I didn't get shaken off of it. There's a lot of space for small check investors. And I think the folks writing small collaborative checks have an incredible opportunity to post some insane multiples. And they have a much clearer on-ramp to becoming a venture investor today than even 10 years ago. So again, I say welcome. Well, it certainly seems like LPs are starting to get this. So you have this new fund that you launched, I guess, last summer in August, Hellform Capital. You're targeting $15 million. Have you closed the fund? We have closed and we actually closed it smaller than that with a fairly meaningful GP commitment from myself. And we've remained small quite deliberately for reasons I'm happy to discuss. But I think this idea of structuring funds to be intentionally collaborative not competitive, avoid adverse selection challenges that come with being a lead investor. And again, be able to co-invest with peer investors, support newcomers to the space. It's really a style of investing that I've come to love. I think this is where the returns lie. Speaking of returns, Michael Kim, and I talked about this recently, Michael is the founder of Sandana Capital, one of your LPs. I think he wrote you a check for $3 million, he'd said. And he pointed to the returns that Chris Saka had enjoyed from his first $7 million fund. I think he said it returned something like 800x. When you talk about collaboration, what have you seen over your 10-year career as an investor? I wonder how relations have changed between seed investors over time. If it's more collaborative, if it's less collaborative, I know that seed stage check sizes grew last year, which suggests to me that things are becoming more competitive. I think it has ebbed and flowed. There was a period where it was extremely competitive. And I think for some folks who are deploying out of a certain fund size, it might feel extremely competitive right now. To me, it feels at its most collaborative because I've been personally LPing a number of tiny funds, doing my own tiny-sized version of what Sendana is doing with their nano fund program, which has in turn created a ton of collaborative deal flow for myself through form, which is great. And I also think those LP checks that I'm writing to tremendously 
talented managers who are just getting their start, who are raising these tiny funds, many of them under $10 million. I think those are going to be some of the best, smartest checks I can write as an LP, period, because they have this potential for asymmetric upside that gigantic funds simply don't have. And so I think I've found my niche inside of venture, which is to write these smaller checks. And then as I think about how do I scale this going forward, whereas I think other managers might try to immediately scale the AUM of these core funds up and up and up. And by doing so, in essence, hope that their economics on any given check scale with that. I think there's another way to scale it, which is to scale GP commit and thereby continue to invest the same check size, but effectively have far greater ownership of each check, which scales the economics of the fund without having to scale the size of the fund. And what's most important about that is that it avoids adverse selection challenges. By that, I mean, there's a number of funds that raise more than they should have, particularly in the seed stage. I think there's a danger zone raising a fund that's somewhere around $80 million where you're forced to be a lead investor. You can't be a collaborative investor. And so that becomes this slug it out, duke it out with other funds as to who's going to be the lead writer on a given deal. It's somewhat of a zero-sum game. And then in situations where, okay, you still want to invest, but you're getting squeezed down. If you're aiming to write a large check in the seed stage world, that would be like a million five. And the founder comes back to you and says, well, we can't do that, but we can give you 150K allocation. That's just absolutely fatal to somebody trying to deploy a very large seed fund. Versus if my target check size is something like 250 and I get squeezed down to 150, I can actually make that work economically within the fund math. And so I think there becomes this advantage about being able to invest enough into each deal where the fund math works and never really facing this adverse selection challenge. We've been very deliberate about trying to structure something where when we would like to invest, we're able to invest and able to invest a sufficient amount to return the entire fund. So Bobby, a few quick questions. First, you said that you have the biggest commitment in your own fund. Can you say what percentage of the fund is coming from you? I'd rather not share at this point, but meaningful. Okay. And also, where did you close your fund? A little bit under 12 million. So it's a very small fund. Okay, great. So you can write anything as small as $150,000 to upwards of what? 500, give or take. Okay. And what kind of ownership percentage are you targeting? Our target is 3%. But again, I think part of the joy of being a small fund manager is more flexibility in terms of constructing a portfolio. In the cases where we may get squeezed down a little bit, or maybe we want to invest at a slightly higher valuation than is typical, we can paint outside the lines a tiny bit more than perhaps someone deploying a larger fund. Although I think that being said, we're still fairly disciplined. And when you say paint outside the lines, that means bigger checks, but also do you raise SPVs in order to take a bigger bite of certain companies? I think one kind of pattern for that was my personal investment in Coinbase. By being close to the company, by helping on a few very minor things over the years in in terms of design and in terms of making connections to design firms and helping recruit some designers, they gave me follow-on allocations in Coinbase. And then in the Series E, I was able to raise an SPV. That's essentially the model going forward. We may or may not continue to pursue SPVs. We may take a different vehicle in the future for how to deploy that follow-on capital, but that's the idea. 
wedge in early with a small check, a lot of skin in the game on that check, but, but still a small check nonetheless, and build a relationship and try to be disproportionately helpful relative to our check size, especially when it comes to design, and then use that relationship as a means of securing far greater allocations in follow-on rounds. Bobby, you tweeted that for that SPV that you raised in Coinbase's last round, you pitched 50 different parties and only three said yes. Have you actually gone forward and emailed the Fortune article to the other 47? <laughs> yeah, you did your homework in preparing for this interview. Yeah, it was amazing in late 2018 how in the dumps the crypto market was in general, and people thought that the overall stock market was going to be heading that way. And this was a very, very difficult SPV to raise. I wasn't the only person who had one. And so there was some amount of in the market competition. And then just the nature of SPVs are such that you get your allocation and then bang goes the starting gun. And you need to very, very quickly talk to a lot of people. It is remarkable how quickly the perception of that company has changed over just two short years, give or take. I give a lot of credit to the investors who backed us on that SPV because they took a risk with us. I had a number of people say, you should have called me. I would have invested. And maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't have. But at the time, I was getting a lot of no's. Well, we interviewed Katie Hahn of Andreessen Horowitz last week, and I was noting that in 2018, a lot of people thought, this strategy is crazy. These guys are doubling down on disaster here. And of course, they weren't. Bobby, also, you mentioned these smaller funds that you're backing. Would you care to mention any? Because I'm sure listeners would be interested in tracking what you're tracking. I'd rather not at the moment, only because I want to defer to those fund managers about how they want to talk about their LPs. I don't exactly have in my head which ones are more public about their fundraising and who are not. But even just this year to date, I've backed almost 10 new managers. Almost all of them are at this very tiny fund size. That money is not coming out of form capital. That's a separate pool of your own money that you're doing that work with. Correct. Those are personal LP checks. I have seen other funds that are small raise micro fund of funds, which I think is an interesting strategy for cultivating deal flow. But I think my personal LP investments have been a very symbiotic thing with form. And again, it lets me generate the most returns and also the most deal flow value to myself. Are some of these micro fund managers Facebook alums? No, none of them are yet, which is um, interesting. A lot of these folks are people that I think ha have a distinct advantage in terms of accessing deals that maybe I wouldn't. So many of these people have an audience. Some of these people are startup founders themselves and are running a startup on the side. A few of them are diverse fund managers who are accessing networks that maybe I don't see and are breaking out onto cap tables, which is very exciting to support. But again, I'm doing all of it as an extension of the work that I'm doing through the fund. Well, speaking of people who have other jobs, your co-founder in Form Capital has another job, Josh Williams, co-founder CEO of Gowalla, a company that was founded as a Foursquare competitor in 2009 and resurrected more recently as a, a social network that invites users to unlock the world around them in augmented reality. I don't know that Josh has offered more of an explanation of what he's working on than that, but I did see that it raised $4 million and I'm just wondering how that works. Is he actively engaged with Form Capital? Are you running the show there with his occasional counsel? I don't want to spill the beans too much on what Josh has planned with Gowalla 2.0. It's extremely exciting. And the people he's been able to hire are just absolutely top-notch, 
The structure of that was form was the only pre-seed investor into Gowalla on extremely favorable terms. And then Josh continues to split his time between Gowalla and Form. Most of it is leaning towards Gowalla, but we explained the situation to the LPs and they're actually very excited about it. One of the funds that I've backed, I believe I can share this, is Todd Goldberg and Rahul Bora. Rahul is the founder of Superhuman. And Todd is in essence running the day-to-day of this fund. In many ways, what Josh and I are doing is very much simpatico with what they're doing. This idea of pairing a founder of a very exciting startup with a full-time investor is actually a very good strategy. You wind up accessing deals and opportunities that maybe just a full-time investor on his or her own might not see. Just in a different information flow, essentially. Totally. Yeah. And you know, Josh and I have very compatible networks, I would say. There's a lot of overlap, but we do tend to see different deals just through the people we, we know. And then In terms of form as an organization, it was very important for me to co-found this with someone that I thought was an absolute world-class designer who could set the bar for the types of designers we're going to bring in-house to work with our portfolio companies. And Josh has more than lived up to that. And so when he said yes to agreeing to work with me on this, I really jumped out of my chair. The opportunity to work with a designer of his caliber is really just something I couldn't pass up. She mentioned at the outset finding this subreddit that was delving into Coinbase and how that kept you informed about what's happening in the Bitcoin world. And you've talked about communities. I'm wondering where you're finding the strongest communities now. You moved to Miami three months ago. I'd love to know why that is. And if you think that you're hearing about more interesting deals being where you are than you would be in the Bay Area. Someone I think a lot of us follow on Twitter, Austin Allred, posted just the other day, Miami is going to meme its way into becoming a tech hub, isn't it? It does really feel like that is the case. And I give a lot of credit to the mayor, Francis Suarez, for just being the recruiter of the year and helping to create this excitement and a movement in creating this new tech hub. I started seeing this maybe in late November and then very quickly said, okay, why not? This feels fun. This feels exciting. And I'm glad I made the jump because while I love San Francisco, I think San Francisco is a tremendous place and it will always be one of the great tech epicenters of the world. To join in this really nascent community where I think a lot of folks moved here because they were looking to change things up. Maybe they were a little bit burned out with where they came from. The energy that comes from that, where everyone's trying to make this work, it is really quite exciting. And it reminds me a lot about the startup community when I first encountered it, for example, at South by Southwest 2006, 2007, where you can go and meet people working on interesting things. You can go get a meeting with the folks working on OpenStore and and Atomic. And the people in the community really rush to welcome you. There's this constant flow of people coming through town. So even right now, I don't want to mention who it is because he hasn't agreed to this, but I have a a founder of a very successful startup. He's coming and staying with me while he's coming through town. And there's been a couple of guests like that. And there's been many coffee meetings with people that, frankly, I wouldn't have met had it not been for this great excuse of this Miami movement that's happening. A lot of people said, you're going to miss out on things by moving to Miami. You're going to take a step back on your career. And really, it's been the opposite of that. It's been a total accelerant of my career in investing. 
And for just a number of reasons, I think we're also an interesting fit for Miami because Miami is known as being a design capital and we're a really design-driven fund. And so I kind of came to the point where I could say, I can be one of many, many thousands of new funds based in the Bay Area, or I can be one of a tiny handful based here in Miami and then get all these tailwinds, have the mayor hype us up. That sounds like a good deal to me. I'm very intrigued about your emphasis on product design and also your hatred of thought leaders. I'm just wondering if you can describe the design sprint process that you have done for companies like Almanac and also some of the biggest success stories you've had in this design process. Yeah. Well, I think hatred is a strong word in terms of my feelings towards thought leadership. But I do think that a lot of fund managers struggle to market themselves in the space. And I think they land on what has become the standard playbook of, let me just tweet out a bunch of startup advice every single day and use that as a means of marketing myself. And and I think if you're giving that velocity of advice, there's no way all of it can be good. I would so much rather give no advice than give bad advice and have someone take it and run a mile with it and suffer the consequences of taking seriously advice that was given really for viral reach, not for effectiveness. And so one of the ways that we are looking to market ourselves, and and we are still getting better at this, is to just show the work that we're doing to support our companies. So when we invest in a company, we offer an optional design sprint, which is roughly 40 hours of hands-on design support. We recently hired a new designer to help take this on. We're going to be hiring another one still to facilitate this. It's led at the discretion of the founder and and tailored for each startup. But in some cases, that might mean a brand design sprint. So we actually just wrapped up a brand design sprint that we're about to share with one of our companies, Baystash, which is an enterprise development tool. We're very excited to take the wraps off that fairly soon. Other types of sprints we can run are looking at onboarding flows. So optimizing an onboarding flow to convert more signups, which again, harkens back to my, the work I did as the first designer on Facebook's user growth team. Sometimes we might do packaging design sprints or just putting a fresh coat of paint on a marketing site that can change the perception of our companies, potentially helping them raise additional capital. We hope that that forms the foundation of our marketing strategy, which will be more show and don't tell. Now, one of the challenges, of course, with this is that this takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time and time doesn't scale in the same way that dollars scale. And so we have to build an organization that facilitates this work. And that's a lot of what we've been doing over the last year. To date, we've shared about four different design sprints. And my hope is that over this year, you're going to see just a lot more of these cranking out. But it is kind of fundamentally a much slower cadence of content marketing, if you will, than to be able to just dispense our advice nonstop. I know that you don't focus necessarily on any specific sectors. As you said, nobody really was investing in crypto as a theme when you wrote your check to Coinbase. I am wondering, given your background, what you make of some of these new social media initiatives. Obviously, you're investing in Josh's company, which sounds really interesting, and I'm curious to see what happens there. More specifically, a lot of news this week about Reddit talk, Twitter spaces, of course, Facebook building its own 
social audio app. What do you think of audio as a social outlet? Yeah, well, just to speak for a second on social writ large, I think a lot of folks had written off the idea of consumer social as a category. And it's very, very exciting for me to see Clubhouse prove them wrong. If it's done anything, it's proven a lot of folks wrong when they said there's no more consumer social startups that are going to have success. I'm very bullish on Clubhouse. They've been subject more than most startups to this incredible rise of commentary class in startup culture where I think for a long time people were cheering them on and now those same people seem to be throwing tomatoes their way. The reality is I I respect the folks in the arena more than the peanut gallery and I'm very long-term bullish on Clubhouse. To be specific on how I think they might succeed, even though I, I know there's a lot of criticism coming their way, there's a lot of clones coming in their way, people are questioning their usage numbers. Clubhouse in particular has an opportunity to build a universal social app as contrasted with, say, Twitter. Twitter has never really been a universal product in the same way that Instagram and Facebook are, for example. With Facebook and Instagram, virtually anyone can sign up for the service and get connected to about a dozen close friends and family members and have a pretty good experience of sharing their photos or their life experiences and getting a certain amount of engagement, even if you don't have a following, even if you don't have an audience. And I think Twitter for the longest time has actually faced quite a difficult challenge, which is you have a user sign up and they can bounce away because they can't cultivate that following. Maybe they don't aspire to be an influencer and they just don't get the product as a result. I think a lot of people look at Clubhouse through this influencer lens where they say, okay, the most important thing about Clubhouse is being able to pack a room with people and have a million Clubhouse followers. And I actually think that's certainly one aspect of Clubhouse, but I think the more captivating and more universal aspect of Clubhouse are these small rooms where Anyone can sign up and hopefully get connected to a few of their friends and then just fall into a five or six person, more social, small room. A lot of the commentary and the media coverage of Clubhouse is fixated on these gigantic rooms with celebrities in them. And I think that's a very important aspect of the product. But if you want universal appeal, you actually need a product that anyone on the planet, even if they don't have that audience, can fall into the product and find uh, real utility out of it. That's what's so important. That's what Facebook nailed back in the day. That's what Instagram nailed. That's what Twitter has never been able to, to capture. And I don't believe that Twitter spaces will actually be able to solve that problem for them. Of all of the Clubhouse competitors, would you say that Reddit is perhaps the best positioned Yeah, because I think the narrative that's been told is that we're seeing Clubhouse being turned into a feature rather than a platform. But really, it takes on a very different tone depending on which platform you drop it on. And Reddit, I think, has a very interesting, distinct style relative to all the other social platforms. And so as a result, this feature you drop on top of it is going to look the most different. And you're not an investor in the social space currently, aside from Gowalla. Is that true? I have a few small bets and we're certainly looking at new bets within the social space. I'm obviously personally very interested in this intersection between social and crypto. When those ingredients are mixed in a considerate manner, I think typically crypto folks want it to be a little bit too crypto heavy, but there's a lot of potential for new entrants in the social space overall. 
Bobby, we have so enjoyed talking with you. I did want to ask what you make of Lena Khan, who is, I think, as we speak in the middle of a Senate confirmation hearing to become the FTC head. Obviously, she is this Columbia University law professor who seemingly would be more interested in uh, taking a more aggressive stance toward antitrust. Do you comfortable sharing your thoughts about whether you think some of these companies, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, have gotten too big? Yeah. Well, of those companies, I'm closest to Facebook having worked there. And the reference point that I would give is that everyone said that no new social app could break out and here comes Clubhouse, right? And so I really am of two minds about this. I do think in some cases, the absolute market bending ability of these big companies is something to look at. But I also think the nature of startups is such that the person in first place now can later be last. Any heavy-handed approach, I would tend to disagree with, but some of these companies have taken on almost governmental scale in their own right. And I think in in limited capacities, it's worth looking at those government-like roles that these companies are taking on and saying, well, should we move that into the government itself? And I think that's an interesting conversation worth having. Some of the trust-busting efforts would need to be thoughtfully considered. For example, there was a fever pitch of folks saying, break up Facebook because they thought that there were these negative externalities of Facebook's algorithm. And one of the counterpoints I might say to that is that when you break that company up, it now forms competitions within the different sub-companies. So Instagram is now directly competing with Facebook. And so if you're worried about the secondary bad consequences of algorithms, well, maybe because they face increased competition, they're actually going to dial the aggressiveness of these algorithms up because of competitive pressures. And so Again, I don't think in all cases, breaking up companies is bad. I think it ought to be looked at in a deliberate and careful way. I just think it's very important to ask the question, what problem are we trying to solve before taking a giant hammer to some of these companies? I think that's a really great point you make about them dialing up the rhetoric to get people to stay on even longer where they to be divided. Bobby, thank you so much. Really a pleasure to talk to you today. I feel like this was really fun and informative and I didn't mean to take up so much of your time. So thank you sticking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for interviewing me. Bye, everyone. Go Dubs. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening. See you next week.